Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, folks online or afternoon or whenever you are listening to this. It's good to have you as, as part of this, this service here together. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. And uh, I wasn't using a cane today. So, you know, what do you think of that? So uh, some days are good and some days aren't. It's just, it's just a radical difference thing. But uh, I, I'll give you this piece of good news, and I appreciate the prayers that people have had for me. It's, it's, I really do appreciate it. I was looking at, they were saying I had to wait uh, four to eight weeks to get surgery, and, um, and that's after I jumped through all the hoops that the insurance company put out there. <laughs> Finally, when I get all that done, I, 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 they called to tell me that we can start scheduling this, but it turns out that they had a cancellation, and, and, and so just the day before, and so I got bumped up eight weeks, and my surgery is on Tuesday. <laughs> I am really looking forward to that. I... I mean, that was, that's eight weeks of pain gone. And so uh, uh, thank God for that. So, uh, uh, but I'll only be out for about a week, uh, and I'll be back in action before you know it. And so uh, just keep me covered in prayer. I appreciate that. And hopefully I'll be doing cartwheels before you know it. <laughs> Here's something that is unrelated to everything that I'm going to talk about, but I think it's still worth saying. Um, you may have noticed that the two restaurants just to our north here uh, have both gone bankrupt, out of business. But one's opening up again. What used to be the Perkins is now a new Asian cuisine. And, and here's the thing. We're called to just bless our neighborhoods, right? We want to be a blessing uh, to all the folks around us. And so we have to eat after service at some time. And don't everyone do it this morning. But, but uh, I, just put it on your mental list. To check out some local restaurants once in a while when, uh, after the service. And in particular, I really would like to see this new Asian cuisine. I forget what the title of it is, but this new restaurant, Thrive. And so let's help them thrive. All right. So, Got to eat. Might as well eat there. Support your local businesses. All right. So we're studying the book of Revelation. Uh, and we're calling this entitled series, The Unveiling, as you just saw. And we're entitling our our. our sub-series, and we'll be having sub-series throughout this thing. You've got to break it into smaller units. But this is, we're entitling this, Don't Be Afraid, because the first thing that Jesus says to John in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, when Jesus shows up, is Jesus says, don't be afraid. And he says that because Jesus looks really, really scary. But as we saw last week, if, if, if you'll just decode, just sort of interpret the various odd things about the way Jesus appears in the book of Revelation, you'll see that what looks scary on the surface is actually very, very good news. And this is true of the whole book of Revelation. John uses a lot of bizarre, surrealistic, sometimes even vengeful and violent images. He pulls them from the Old Testament. He pulls them from other apocalyptic literature. His, his, his audience is all familiar with all of this, and we're going to have to make ourselves familiar with this to understand this. But uh, when you understand all that John's doing, there, you, you, you look closely at it and study it carefully, you'll find that what looks scary on the surface and what looks violent on the surface is actually not scary or violent. Uh, it's actually part of the good news uh, that all is about Jesus Christ, and this whole book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. One of the themes that we'll find running throughout this book is that appearances can be deceiving, and often are deceiving. In fact, we'll see throughout the book of Revelation that there's two perspectives that we find running throughout this book. One is the heavenly perspective, which is the true perspective. Here's what's really going on. But then there's the perspective of those on the earth who think they know what's going on, but they're deceived. Uh, appearances can be deceiving. And so a lot of this book will be about unveiling the truth of what's going on. 
in contrast to appearances. And all of this is anchored in the cross. John's theology of appearances can be deceiving. It's anchored in the cross, where on the cross, it looked like God was losing, and it looked like evil was winning, but in fact, in the very process of God looking like he's losing, he is in fact winning. And what we're going to see in the book of Revelation, and it's just brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant the way John does this, but it's that that, that dynamic on the cross of God winning by looking like he, he, he's losing uh, is echoed throughout history and will culminate at the very end of the age. So it, it's, John celebrates the victory of the cross in 30 AD, and he looks forward to the victory of the cross at the end of history, but he also is going to, by the way he's, he uses symbols, show us that the victory of the cross and the battle that the cross was involved in, it echoes throughout history, and we are all going to be part of this. So this, this, this uh, uh, phrase, don't be afraid, it may look on Good Friday like things are really going bad and God is losing and the world's going to just be destroyed and all the rest. But know that when it looks like God is losing, God is actually winning. And this phrase, don't be afraid, really applies to today's message. The topic of today's message is, the time is near. The time is near. Referring to the time when God's going to bring this whole thing to the close. The time when Jesus is going to return. The time is near. Don't be afraid. And I imagine I need to say that because for some folks, the idea that Jesus is returning or Jesus will appear is scary. Let me say a word about this. There's two ways of talking about Jesus' return in the New Testament. One is that he'll return, the second coming. The other one, and this is more common in the New Testament, is that he will appear. Perusia means the appearance. And so we don't know what this is going to look like, uh, but it has, both of those images are meant to just display that there'll be a final appearing or coming at the end of the, at the, end of the age. Um, in some ways, I like the appearing better because the return makes it sound like Jesus is far away someplace. He's going to return from the planet he's on. He's going to come and get us. Uh, the return language is very important when we come to understand, and we'll look at this later on in the book, uh, marriage analogies between God and his people, because the, the groom is returning for the bride. So that language is, is important, but, but it can have the idea that Jesus is somewhere distant, whereas the appearing is, is simply that well, he's here, but it's not clear that he's here, but it will become clear. He'll, it will become apparent. He will appear, hallelujah, at the end of the age. But it's scary for a lot of people. I saw this bumper sticker, bumper sticker a couple years ago, uh, and it went something like this. Uh, Jesus is coming back, and man, is he pissed. <laughs> And you see different versions of that all over the place. Uh, and that's people's conception. Like he was the nice guy in the Gospels, but man, uh, he's really ticked off right now. When he comes back, he's going to be slaughtering people left and right. So it seems scary. But I want to tell you that, that what looks scary on the surface, if we just are patient and, and look into the, the meaning and the symbols and stuff behind it, we'll see that it's all part of the good news. So let's read Revelations, same passage as last week, Revelations 1, 1 through 3. Where John says, the revelation, the apocalypse, the ap apocalypsis in Greek. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Which must soon take place, must soon take place. And he made it known, that phrase made it known is interesting, we'll unpack that a little bit later on. By sending his angels to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Note this. All that he saw was about 
the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what he's going to see doesn't always look like the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It looks like a whole lot of other stuff, but all of it boils down to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because this is all about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Then he says, blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to hear it and to keep it. To hear it and to keep it, to guard it. And Lord, let it not just be a, a, a theoretical, intellectual exercise in our heads, but Lord, help it to percolate down to our hearts to change the way we live. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, 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 amen. Uh, all right. I'm going to talk about the time is near and soon pretty quickly, uh, but I want to give a couple of preliminary points. Um, the first verse, let's read it again. It says, the revelation apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means unveiling, to uncover. It has a connotation in many contexts of to uncover in a surprising way. And we're going to see that there's a lot of uncovering and disclosing that is really surprising. And it's all, in one way or another, about Jesus Christ. But apocalypsis also refers to a type of literature. Apocalyptic literature. So a little bit of background here. From 200 B.C. to around 200 A.D., roughly 400 years, uh, this type of literature was really in vogue. It was very prevalent, especially in Jewish circles. And uh, uh, this literature, it, it uses a lot of symbols, a lot of surrealistic images, and a lot of different things. It's born out of, this kind of literature is born out of oppression. So the, the Jews had been for a long time under the rule of pagans. And often it was really oppressive, really barbaric, really brutal, a lot of conflict. Went on for hundreds of years. And around 200 B.C., some folks began to realize that there's more going on than just God and his people. The, 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 the first covenant's anchored in this idea that if we just obey God, things are going to go well for us. And if things aren't going well for us, it's because we're not obeying God. That's the terms of the first covenant. But at this time, after all this, these years of oppression and the rule by pagans, some folks began to think that that theology was wearing thin. This can't all be just God's will going on here. There's more going on. And began to realize that, 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 that the, the cosmos is populated with angelic beings, some of them who work on God's side and others who are on, 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 on Satan's side. Begin to realize that they're in the middle of this warfare. This is apocalyptic literature. It's the literature of the oppressed. These people out of their oppression are now looking to God uh, to come and save them uh, in ways that they hadn't been before because they realized that they're caught in the middle of this, this, this kind of warfare that's going on. So here's several characteristics of this apocalyptic literature that John shares. The first characteristic is that it's dualistic. It has what I call a warfare worldview. In, in apocalyptic literature, they see all of history as a battle between God and, and holy angels and his people, the saints, on the one hand, and then Satan or, or some other figure like that, Mastema or Beelzebub, and his evil angels and, and evil people that are fighting on their side. Dualistic. And this battle goes on throughout all of history. Now, at least in Jewish literature, it's really clear that God will win in the end. There's no question about that. But in apocalyptic literature, they emphasize that until that end, until that final victory, 
Well, this world is really oppressed and things can go very, very bad. On the whole, they construe this world as being under the oppressive influence of cosmic powers, evil cosmic powers. And the New Testament and Revelation share this perspective. You find Paul three times referring to the present epoch that we're in as this evil age. That's how they view it, under the oppression of these, these powers. The second thing that, they, that, that uh, the apocalyptic literature shares in common with the book of Revelation is that they expect this to happen very, very soon. At any minute, God could break into this world and, and, uh, uh, and set this world right. And there's going to be this final battle and there's going to be this final victory. And uh, so this is, characterizes all of the apocalyptic literature. It also characterizes the book of Revelation. Although, in the book of Revelation, this final battle, we'll see in chapter 19, five years from now or so, that uh, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting battle. Because the Lamb and his followers, they don't fight with bombs and bullets and swords and all the rest of the stuff, the way that battles are usually fought. The Lamb and his followers don't fight by killing their enemies. They fight by refusing to kill their enemies because they love their enemies to the point that they're willing to be killed by their enemies. Uh, they replicate the sacrifice of Jesus on, on the cross. It's a very different kind of battle. So in Revelation, there's this emphasis on soon, and, and the time is near. Uh, and they share that with, uh, with, with uh, the, the rest of the apocalyptic literature. The third thing, and this is really, really important, is that apocalyptic literature relied heavily on symbols. Not drum symbols, but other kinds of symbols, you know, things that represent things, not literal language. Uh, in fact, in, in, in the opening phrase, when it says Jesus made it known to his servants, what must soon take place, that phrase made it known. Semeno is the word. We get the word uh, symbiotics from it. Uh, it means, it's not literal just like I'm going to tell you something, but rather I'm going to signify something or I'm going to symbolize something. It means to symbolize. And some commentators argue that this was John's way right out of the gate of telling his audience, don't, don't take this literally. You've got to think symbolically if you're going to understand the book of Revelation. If you take it literally, it's going to lead to some funky, funky results. Um, and I'm telling you that from experience, because my first year as a Christian, I was obsessed, as my whole church was, with the book of Revelation, and we took it all literally. We thought it was just a snapshot of the future, okay? This peekaboo into what's going to happen in the last few years of, of, of world history. And, um, and so it was all supposed to be literal, and I remember getting so disturbed by the fact that I, I read in Revelation 6, it says, all the stars in the sky fell to the ground like figs. Now, if you're really committed to a literal interpretation, you've got some problems here. Uh, there's a little bit of a conflict with what we know about astronomy. I actually heard one preacher back in my early days argue this. He said that, uh, my Bible says the stars fell from the sky like figs. So don't you go believe in all those liberal astronomers that those, those things out there are billions of miles away, giant helium balls. No, they're the size of figs. They're just very bright, and they're going to fall on the ground someday. That's what my Bible says. Hallelujah. Don't go listen to those liberal scientists, Hubble telescope crying out loud. So, yeah, that, that was bad enough. What was maybe worse is that in, come to chapter 8, and the stars are back up in the sky. And then they fall to the ground again. And then in chapter 12, they're back up in the sky again, and they fall to the ground again. Now, you make sense out of that if, you have a, if you're committed to a literal interpretation, and you find that happening again and again and again. Uh, you can't take the book of Revelation literally. 
And even those who, take, who think they're taking it literally don't really take it literally because they don't, most of them at least, believe that the stars are actually the size of figs. And they're going to fall to the ground someday and then God's going to put them back up to fall again. When you're thinking about Revelation, it helps to think, like, lot, don't, don't think in terms of a snapshot. Um, think in terms of, like, a, a Picasso painting. Uh, and I got, by the way, I got this analogy from Vern Eller, who wrote this marvelous book called The Most Revealing Book in the Bible. Uh, it, it, was, it was one of the books, probably one of the most important books, that really made Revelation come alive to me when I, when I first read it. And I strongly recommend it. Unfortunately, it's out of print, and you can hardly ever find it. And if you do find it, you've got to pay a whole lot of money for it. So um, I got a copy, if you, you know, and I'll sell it to you for $200. That's how you, <laughs> if you can find it it's, it, 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 it's really worth getting. So here's the thing. A Picasso painting. Let's take uh, Guernica, for example. It's pronounced, I looked it up, Guernica. Guernica is a city uh, in Spain. And it was bombed uh, by the Germans and Italian forces uh, on April 28, 1937. And it was devastating. So Picasso paints this painting, Guernica. And we have a copy. It's a little hard to see, but you can look at it there. Now, this painting is about Guernica and the horror of what happened at Guernica. But, see, what John does is he universal, or what, what Picasso does is he universalizes it, and that's what this, his abstract painting is about. So it's about Guernica. But it's not, there's nothing about it that's unique to Guernica. You can never find out, for example, what were the customs of dress in Guernica in 1937. You're not going to get it from Picasso's painting. He's not interested in those kind of historical details. He's interested in abstracting out of Guernica the horror of war so that now Guernica becomes a symbol for the horror of war at all times and the suffering that people go through at all times. Universalizes it. And so in that way, uh, Picasso's symbolic expression of Guernica says much more than what a snapshot or a literal painting of Guernica could do. And that's the value of symbols. They can communicate things more powerfully than literal pictures ever could. So Revelation, it speaks about literal events and about literal people. And John's writing it to seven literal churches. But the way John talks about these literal events that are soon going to take place, literal events soon going to take place, the way he talks about them, well, he, he, he universalizes them. And, uh, and so they become symbols that communicate something to all people at all times if they've got ears to hear and eyes to see. It's a universal symbiology. For, uh, one example is most scholars agree that throughout the, book of Rome, throughout the book of Revelation, John has a critique of Rome, the Roman Empire, and he blasts it for its, its idolatry and for its violence and for its, its, its power tactics, for its corruptions, for its deceptions, for the way it's being used by the beast and by Satan. The powers are using Rome, power of Rome, the empire, in very ungodly ways. But he never calls Rome Rome. He calls Rome Babylon. And there's a history, and we'll look at this, how Babylon has taken on this symbolic importance uh, in, in, in Jewish literature. But Babylon then comes to stand for evil empires in general. In fact, for all empires in general, because John is saying that all empires share the characteristics of Rome. Some more, some less, but they all have this kind of quality. He universalizes it. So now it applies to all people at all times in different ways, including us who are here in America, the empire of America, or wherever other empire you are if you're listening online. It has something to say to us. 
Rome is not just Rome. It's more than that. It represents all of the evil that's perpetrated by empires throughout all of history. Another way that John reflects the apocalyptic literature uh, of his time. So, so these are the characteristics that John has in common with apocalyptic literature. He uses a lot of symbols, but he speaks about these things as happening soon, that, and they're going to happen very quickly. This he shares with all of the apocalyptic literature. And I want us to see this, guys. This soon stuff is not a, a peripheral aspect of uh, the book of Revelation. Seven times John will depict Jesus as saying, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, in various ways. This is going to happen soon. And a number of times throughout this book, he's telling people to hurry, get ready. Uh, be prepared for this. It's happening soon. So this is a, cent a central heartbeat of the book of Revelation. But it's also a central heartbeat of the whole New Testament. You read the New Testament and you'll find that it permeates almost every page. This expectation that Jesus is coming soon. And he's going to set the world right soon. Jesus is going to appear among us soon. Uh, and so we got to be ready. You have to be prepared. Jesus tells five parables that are on this very point. Be ready. Don't get caught off guard. Be watching. Be sober-minded. And so this is something that is, is a central part of the New Testament. Uh, and so John here assumes, and this is true of the whole New Testament, that when he says soon, his audience knows what he means. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, John assumes that when he's talking, his, his audience knows what he means. And so when he says soon to his audience, he can't mean to refer to events 2,000 years or more from the time he's writing, uh, the last seven years of world history. Because if John is writing about the last seven years of world history, his audience wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about. In fact, if John's writing about the last seven years of world history, no one in history is going to have a clue what he's talking about, except for the people in the last seven years. At least the way that I was taught, by then we'll be raptured and it'll be too late. So what good is this book? It is, no, John assumes that, that, that his audience knows that what he's talking about. That's why he says, blessed are those who hear these words and who keep these words. You can't keep words that you don't understand. Right? So we have to always ask the question, what did it mean to them? It's always the first question of exegesis when you're, when you're studying the Bible. What would these words have meant to the, the original audience? Because the, the author intends these words to mean something to the original audience. You following me here? Once we settle that, we can ask, what does it mean to us? But always ask, what's the original meaning? And this is something that people generally, I mean, it's, it's exegesis 101. But for some reason, when it comes to the book of Revelation, people forget all their exegesis, throw the exegetical books out of the, 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 the window, and they start like saying, well, how does Revelation correlate to current events here? Instead of saying, what did it mean to them? So, for example, 666. Oh, the mark of the beast. The most scary symbol in the whole book of Revelation. Terrified us. 666. Whenever we saw 666, we wanted to run. The Rockefeller building, 666. Oh, Antichrist lives there. Anyway, what we should have done is ask the question, what would 666 have meant to the original audience? How do they understand 666? And I can guarantee you they weren't thinking of Henry Kissinger, <laughs> which is what we thought 666 stood for. And, you know, it's not too hard to take anyone's name that you don't like and find a way to fit it into 666. Or it could be 661 because some manuscripts have 661 and doesn't it throw a monkey wrench into the whole thing? All right. 
So John assumes that his audience will understand what he's talking about. So there's a sense, folks, in which Revelation, uh, everything that John's talking about, there's a sense in which it was fulfilled in the first century. And all of his predictions are fulfilled in the first century. That's what it would have meant to them. But it doesn't mean that the book of Revelation, therefore, doesn't have anything significant and very important to say to us, looking at this 2,000 years older. Uh, because John, like, like Picasso with painting, John universalizes his symbols. And so what he has to say to folks in the first century also applies to us. He unveils truths that are true at all times throughout history to anyone who has ears to hear. So he'll try this. And note how nice that I don't have to have a cane because it would really be hard to draw with a cane. So this is good. Some days are up, some days are bad, but after Tuesday, hopefully, we won't have this problem anymore. So here, oh, here's a way to think about it. Think about the cross, Calvary, where God first looked like he was losing but was actually winning. This conflict and victory of, of Calvary. Think of, think of this and God's final victory at the end as, as being, I mean, as being uh, bookends. Okay, so here, you'll follow this. Here's bookends. Um, and so in 30 AD or so, Jesus first confronts the powers of evil that rise up against him. He, he embodies God's love and, and uh, uh, has his victory. And, but it's not totally manifested until the end of the age. And so you can think about these bookends, as it were, as this is, follow me here. Uh, uh, this is D-Day. Uh, uh, this is a big D. D-Day and V-Day. And I'm here drawing on, on uh, in World War II, uh, D-Day was uh, June 6, 1944, and that's when the U.S. allies invaded uh, Normandy Beach. And historians say that after the allies won that battle, it was now inevitable that, that Germany was going to lose the war. It was inevitable. We broke the back of the, the German military. And yet, it took another year and a half before we got to V-Day, Victory Day where Germany surrendered, and now all, the victory that was in principle won on D-Day is fully manifested on V-Day. And in between here, we have where we're living. This is the time in between D-Day and V-Day. So, so on, 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 on D-Day, God embodied his love in this world. God became a human being embodied his love in this fallen world that's oppressed by the powers. And when God embodied this love in this world that's oppressed by, the oppressive that's oppressed by these powers, uh, the forces of evil, using people whose hearts were open to influence from evil, uh, crucified the Lord of glory. He was crucified. But the very act of him losing was the act of him winning. Because by losing, he was sacrificing himself out of love for a lost human race and for all of creation. And it was the manifestation of that unprecedented love, that explosion of light, that explosion of love on the cross that in principle defeated the powers of darkness and in principle freed all of creation. Now that will be fully manifested at the end of time. It's not fully manifested now, obviously. So John, the book of Revelation, celebrates this victory in 30 AD and looks forward to this victory whenever it's going to happen, especially in chapters 21 and 22. But in between, he says, he, he, he depicts it as echo. There's echoes. Now, it's said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does echo. There's echoes. This battle and this victory will play itself out throughout all of history. 
As God embodies his love once again, now not in the person of Jesus Christ, but in, his, in the body of Christ. And when the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey that John's writing to, when they authentically embody the presence of God, the love of God, the character of God, forces of evil will rise up against them to squash them, to kill their witness. But if you'll remain faithful to the end, being willing to suffer and maybe even die for your faith, well, now you will share in the ultimate victory of God. This time in between is the, is the sometimes you've heard us talk about the already and the not yet tension of the New Testament, already and not yet. There's a sense in which the victory on D-Day has already occurred, but it's not yet fully manifested. And so the already points back to the first cross, the Jesus crucifixion, the not yet looks forward to the ultimate victory. And as we play this out, the presence of God, the love of God embodied in us, the forces of evil rising up against us to try to kill our witness, that's how we participate in the already and the not yet. We are participating in the already because we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You find this throughout the New Testament. We suffer with Christ. We suffer for Christ. We participate in his sufferings. And if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. So we're replicating the battle on, on Calvary, but we're also participating in the final victory because our faithfulness will not be fully, the, the reward for that won't be manifest until the end of the age. So Revelation talks about what was fulfilled, what will be fulfilled, but what's also being fulfilled throughout history. And so John is saying right around here, he's writing in the 90s or so. I don't know if you can see that. But he's telling his, his audience in Turkey, in Asia Minor, he's saying, prepare as you follow the lamb wherever he goes. Jesus became a slain lamb when he dies on the cross. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Remain faithful. And this is how you are going to be participating in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, you're partnering with him and redeeming the world. It's also how you anticipate the final victory. And so, and there, we'll find that there's hints. I put it on the second echo here because in, in chapter 17, he gives a little hint that this isn't the first time that it's echoed. In the 60s, under Nero, the church went through this persecution. And so there's always these lines throughout history where Christians... And being faithful to the call, have to suffer persecution and often die for their faith. And that's going on today. Different areas of the world, North Korea, Somalia, different places, China, where Christians are persecuted. But here's the thing. Even when we're not in one of these overt stages of persecution, these echoes of the battle of the cross, we're still in the battle because there's always forces of evil that are trying to extinguish our witness. And, and it, here's something that's just been sobering to me as I've been pouring myself in the book of Revelation, that um, there's two ways of killing the witness of the church. And this is all that the forces of evil care about. Two ways of killing the witness. One way is by killing the witnesses. If they don't compromise, just kill the witnesses. But if, you, if circumstances are such that you can't kill the witnesses, well, at least kill their witness. And the way you kill your witness is just by getting them to compromise. To follow the ways of Babylon, and we're going to find throughout the book of Revelation, there's this duality here that, where John, on the one hand, has a strong encouragement to the, to the followers of the land to be faithful to the point of death, 
They overcome by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb, by not loving their lives even to the point of death. Revelation 12, 18. And, 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 and so there's that encouragement. Hang in there. But there's also this confrontation, and we're going to hear this, starting in chapter 2. Um, you're compromising with the ways of Babylon, with the ways of the world. You're losing your distinctive witnesses. You're no longer standing out. You may believe all the right things, but your witness is gone. Uh, the influence on the rest of the world is gone. You're no longer participating in God's work of redeeming this world. Because to redeem this world, you've got to have something to offer the world that the world doesn't already have. And that's our distinctive witness. So the enemy is perfectly happy. If you can kill them, kill them. But if you can't kill them, well, then kill their witness by getting them to compromise. The book of Revelation, it has something to say to people who are in the midst of this persecution and overt suffering, whatever. But it has something to say to all of us because we're always in the battle. Until this is finally done at the end of the age, uh, we are to expect to be uh, called upon to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of furthering the gospel. And that's how we participate in the sufferings of Christ and the sacrifice. It's all about sacrifice, folks. And here's the thing. Like, in the early church, it was considered an honor to offer up your life and to die uh, for Christ in the Colosseum or whatever. You get to imitate Christ, and that's how you participate in the final victory. We don't have that opportunity. So we have to voluntarily die. No one's going to kill us. Probably not in our lifetime in America, though you never know. Um, but, uh, I mean, we have to voluntarily die. Our suffering is something we, we have to choose to do. And we do it by sacrificing our time and our money and our resources, by pouring out our lives for others. So just think about that. Uh, the call to live faithful applies overtly in times of persecution where you might die and you might have to watch your kids die, but it applies to all times and all places because this is what we are called to. This is, what it, this is why I always say the kingdom of God starts with our first drop of blood. It's all about sacrifice. Babylon's always calling. And Babylon is the invitation to convenience, to comfort, to best life now. That's Babylon. Yeah, this life is all there is. So, 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 so grab it all you can get right here, right now. That's Babylon. Live it up. Have as much fun as possible. Bleed as little as possible. Look out for yourself and your loved ones and don't worry about everybody else. That's Babylon talk. You're babbling. Literally, you're babbling. And it goes back to the Tower of Babel. We'll talk about that later on. The invitation of Babylon is always there. And the Lamb is always there saying, no, follow me. Follow me, the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of sacrifice. Not your best life now. Give up a lot of conveniences, whatever. Don't be pursuing everything you get now. No, because the purpose of life the purpose of life is further in the kingdom. They have a character that's conformed to, to Jesus Christ. And we do that by practicing, by sacrificing. This is something we got to be walking in all the time so that our characters conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Because when it wraps all up, which could happen very soon, when Jesus returns, which could happen very soon, when God sets the world right, which could happen very soon, everything that's inconsistent with the character of God is going to be purged. That's the final judgment so that God's eternal kingdom can be established forever and ever and ever. We have to hear these words and take this seriously. Now, as we look back on this, so here we are, wherever we are in the scheme, and who knows, the language may go out way further than this. But we look back on, on, on John's audience, and we can say, you know, in all probability, as John is writing to his audience, they believe that the final judgment is coming, that Jesus' final appearance is going to happen. They're going to enter into the, the, the end of the world as you know it. They, they believe that. 
And in some ways, the world did end as I know it, so it was fulfilled. But it wasn't the ultimate fulfillment that they thought it was. It was rather what we could call, I, I like to call these a penultimate fulfillment. Okay, you may have noticed that the world didn't end uh, in, in the 90s. Uh, there's still more to go. At the same time, his audience, his audience, I think, was perfectly right to assume or to live as though they were facing the end of the world as they knew it, as though Jesus' final appearance was going to happen at any moment. They're right to do that because this is, in fact, how they participate in the original victory, conflict and victory of Jesus, and, in fact, how they participate in the final victory. So they live as though this is the end. Um, and that is the mindset, I think, that we're always supposed to adopt, to live as though the end could happen at any time, as though Jesus could return at any time, as though the world that you know could end at any time. And so now it's confession time. I want to confess. I shared this last week that I, I burned out on the book of Revelation um, after my first year of intense living with this. Um, and, and, and I just didn't want anything to do with, it, with, with end times talk, eschatology, all of that. I just like, let's just get rid of it. Let's just live life right now. It's only been in the last year or two, actually about a year and a half, that I began to realize what an enormous omission that creates. Um, to take out this Jesus is coming soon expectation, or Jesus will appear soon, to take that out, uh, you're not just taking out seven references in the book of Revelation. You're taking out a central part of the New Testament. Um, and and uh, um, I have to say, on behalf of me and the team that I work with who puts those sermons together, I apologize. My main responsibility is to present a balanced diet to you folks. Uh, and, and, and I have to give an account for how the diet that was fed produced fruit. It's really clear. My next in line on this one. Um, and I didn't do that. I failed on that. It, this was not balanced. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I, I, I repent of that. Whenever you find out you have a wrong, you just repent. That just means you turn from it. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I promise you I will not make that mistake again. In fact, to compensate for the fact that I have not preached any messages on the soon return of Jesus in the last 30 years of this church, I'm going to spend the next 30 years preaching on nothing but the soon return of Jesus. How's that? We've got to balance the scales here, right? No, we're not going to do that. That wouldn't be good. But here's the thing, folks. As I, as I look back on my early Christian walk, you know, it was so intense when we, we were just so, you know, into the book of Revelation and, and, and the end could happen at any time when we really believed this and we were seeing the signs and the proof of it everywhere. Um, it was so intense. I, I really understand why conspiracy theories are attractive because there's something so exciting about this. And I look back on it, 1974, you know, everything confirmed what we believed. We were so certain, and it felt like we had a secret that no one else knew. You know, and I, I, I get why conspiracy theories work. But there was so much that was misguided about that early Christian walk. I mean, the way we read the book of Revelation, like the, the newspaper of the future, but it was a horoscope, so you had to decode it. You know, it's just, it, and worst of all was the fact that, that we thought the good news was about us getting out of here. I talked about this last week. The good news is good news for us, but not for the rest of the world, because we know the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but we're going to hightail it out of here when Jesus returns and suctions us out. That's, that, that was our belief. And um, 
I now really realize that, that what we didn't know or, or what we forgot was that the good news is supposed to be good news for everybody because God loves everybody and God wants to save everybody. And Jesus' kids coming back is good news for everybody. It's for everybody. Amen. So there's a lot that was misguided about all that, but I, I, I'm here. there was one thing that we got right. And that was that we, were, and we lived as though this could happen soon. And that is, in fact, the mindset of the New Testament. You can't get around that. You don't have to like it. For, I think, as I look back, if I'm really honest, throughout the most of my ministry, I've been embarrassed by this kind of talk. I, I watered it down to mean something like, well, you could die at any moment, so you always got to be ready. And I always believe that there's hope eternal, and I have no trouble. Like I've always emphasized the importance of heaven and where we're going and whatever. But this idea that it's going to happen soon... I've only been really coming alive to that in the last, that last, that last couple of years. And, uh, and so I, I have to apologize for, for, for that tremendous omission, and it will not happen again. So here's, here's the question I want to end with. What does it look like for us here and now, all of us, to adopt this mindset, to really adopt this mindset and begin to think and live as though this world as we know it could come to an end at any time because God could break into this world at any time. Uh, Jesus could establish the kingdom at any time. What does it look like for us to adopt this mindset? I'll tell you that, for me, the biggest challenge, and I think this is a large reason why I've stayed away from this for 30 years, 40 years. <laughs> um, and it's that, that I, I, I have associated all that end times talk, Jesus coming soon stuff, with, uh, with the left behind crowd. And, and I don't want anything to do with that. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, I associated it with, with all the, here's the thing, and it's not about, it's not just the left behind crowd, but those who go further than just that, the way that we're going to, the way this world's going to end, whether raptured out or not, but folks who are into making predictions, I, I really want to encourage us, whatever authority I have in your life, I want to leverage it right now to encourage you to stay away. They just don't pay any attention to all of the folks who are doing predictions on the basis of Revelation and, and, and looking at astrological signs and the four blood moons and, and trying to find proof that it's going to end now and giving prophecies that never come to pass, but they forget about them. And then they make other prophecies. And people are always into this whole thing. They hold conferences, they write books, and they sell a whole lot. And I encourage you not to pay any attention to that. Um, and I assure you, if this world continues, if the con condition on our planet continues to worsen, as it, it, it will in all probability do, you're going to find these voices getting louder and louder and louder, and they're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons why I felt the need to be preaching on the book of Revelation right now is to counterbalance what I'm absolutely certain we are already hearing and we're going to hear a whole lot more of as we head into the future. Uh, it is, and now they're starting to get into UFOs, you know, and, and how that relates to the secret societies and all the rest of that. Folks, I honestly regard it as, as nothing more than a demonic distraction. Uh, it might be interesting to, you know, well, what about you? Well, but but uh, there's so much important stuff to do right here, right now, by how we live and by how we serve. We can't afford to get distracted chasing off the decoding things, trying to figure out how Revelation fits in with current events. I, 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 to me, it is, it's all, what I was doing as an early Christian, I now regard it as a form of divination. We were trying to divine the future based on what we could see here in the Gospels. And it wasn't really different from tarot card reading. It's just that we're using the Bible instead of tarot cards. Just, I bless those people. God bless them. Um, 
But I, 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 if I associate Jesus' second coming with all of that, then I don't want to think about Jesus' second coming. So if that's you, just set it aside. Bless those people. Don't get angry. Don't judge them. Just set it aside. You don't agree with it. Because when I think about Jesus' second coming, I don't want to be thinking about how I'm going to escape this world. I want to be thinking about how Jesus' second coming is, is here to fix the world. He's going to finally set this world right. Amen. It's good news. It's all good news. And then commit to living as though this could happen at any time because it could happen at any time. And I don't think we should get obsessed about end time things and, you know, all the rest. But we, should, we have to be aware that this could happen at any time. And I find when I put on this mindset, uh, it, it just makes a world of a difference. It makes a world of a difference. And how I, how, I, how, how I, I don't cling to the world nearly as much if I really believe that Jesus is coming back at any moment. I find I'm dying to idols I didn't even know I had. Um, I didn't know that in a, somewhere in the corner of my head, I was feeding off of the idea that 500 years from now, people are going to be reading my theology and talking about me. I, I wasn't even aware of that until I gave up on the idea of legacy. I'm living as though Jesus could return any time. And if you're living like that, you don't worry about your legacy. And I found that it was so freeing. <laughs> like, whoa, I had a burden on this I didn't even know. So is the second coming of Jesus good news or bad news to you? And be honest with yourself. And if it's bad, bad news or scary news, and just be, and, and I encourage you to do this throughout the week. Examine your heart. And if, if there's parts of you that are like scared about that, anxious about that, worried about that, be curious. Don't get mad at yourself. Don't judge yourself. Don't anything. Just, just look at that. Like, why is it bad news to you? Because it's good news in the New Testament. They're looking forward to this. They can't wait. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. So if it's bad news to us, or at least not good news, then you have to ask the question, what are you missing? What are they seeing that you're not seeing? Just be curious about this. Try to expand your imagination. Maybe you're not, not, not using your imagination enough to, to realize how it can be good news. For some folks, you might find that it's not something you're missing, but something you're clinging to. The idea of the world, as you know, coming to an end isn't good news because you like this world, and you've got these nice things, and you want to hold on to those nice things. It's a little bit like C.S. Lewis said in one of his writings. He said, the little boy who's just learning about sex, and he asks his, his, his mom, well, can you have a lollipop during sex? And she says, probably not. And then the little boy goes, little boy goes well, then I don't want to ever have sex. Well, you know, because the best thing he can think of is a lollipop. But boy, if he knew. Uh, you're not going to want that lollipop, kid. See, that, that's how it is. It, it's, uh, we cling to these things, our lollipops. I got my lollipop. When we just don't realize there's so much bad when, when Jesus comes, we're not going to worry about our stupid lollipops. It, it's good news, but you got to let go of your lollipops for it to be good. And then for others, there's just genuine concerns about loved ones and, and children and all the rest. And I can't even get into that. Um, I'll just say this, that at the, at the end of the day, we have to trust God. That we have to just trust. If he says that the, that the glory that awaits us can't be compared to, uh, even compared to the sufferings of this present age, we have to know that God's going to do well by all of our loved ones, by all of our children. The good news is good news for everybody, and sometimes you just got to trust God. There's a lot of questions you can have about this, and that's great. Uh, right about, we'll have a time of a, a Q&A on all this where we discuss this. But I, I want to just end by encouraging us to be practicing putting on this mindset. If you, you know, some of you maybe have already been living like this, but I suspect most of us haven't. 
We tend to live as though the future is going to go on forever just as it is, and that is simply not the case. And so start trying it on. Uh, what does it look like for you to believe that, that, that this could change at any moment? Everything you see is going to ultimately fade away. And in the end, only God's love remains. What does it look like for you to live with that, that expectation and that sense of urgency? Holy Spirit, apply this individually to each of our lives, to the folks in this room, to the folks listening online. Uh, uh, Lord, teach each one of us in our own unique ways what does it look like for us to put on this mindset of the soon return of Jesus Christ and to put it on a way, in such a way that it's good news and infuses our life with a sense of urgency and excitement because it won't be long, Lord, before all that's wrong with this world will be set right. Hallelujah. And you will be glorified and your love shall reign supreme and that you'll wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more weeping and there'll be no more heartache and no more cancer and no more war and no more of all the ugly things that, 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 that make life miserable and that dehumanize people. Uh, Wake us up to the reality of what's going on here, Lord, as we march into the future as ambassadors of Jesus Christ representing the, the lamb slain. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. And all the lamb followers said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world. Amen. <laughs>